Hey guys, what's going on? Welcome to the show. Welcome back. It is Action Movie Anatomy. It's Wednesday. We're here. We're talking about a movie. Is it an action movie? It's full of action-packed drama and a sweet, sweet weapon. It's Action Movie Anatomy. It's Wednesday. I'm Ben Bateman. I'll see you in just one second for No Country for Old Men. Welcome to Popcorn Talk, featuring movie discussion, news, and interviews. Popcorn Talk. We talk movies. And now, here's Popcorn Talk's Action Movie Anatomy. Oh, this song is fitting for this film. Yeah. Yeah. This is what Anton Chigurh listens to in his car. I don't even know what Tommy Lee Jones' character would do if he heard this song. He'd be disgusted. I think he would get a repulsed look on his face. <laughs> what is that sound? <laughs> That's bass, sir. I don't like it. I don't like it. Uh, he probably hears this song in his dreams. Llewellyn? Um, <laughs> I mean, uh, TLJ. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, what's going on, guys? Welcome back. It's Action Movie Anatomy. It's Wednesday. We're here. It's, it's showtime. Showtime. Uh, we're streaming live on the Popcorn Talk Network, the online broadcast network dedicated to talking movies, pop culture, and doing it by the bucketful. And uh, we're talking No Country for Old Men. Yeah. 2007, Best Picture, Coen Brothers. This is definitely a movie that we would have not done at the beginning of our show. No. It is not a true action movie. But when you go and you watch this movie... What you realize is that you are on, like, edge the whole time, just like you are in a thriller. Even yeah. though it's really just kind of a crime drama. Yeah. There's thriller aspects to it, but I think... It's pretty action-y. I mean, there's a lot is. of shootouts and running and, you know... The chasing, people getting stuff destroyed. up. Yeah. I mean, let's talk about the, the rules of action movie anatomy, let's you know? Let's do it. We talk about action movies on this show. Those movies adhere to four basic rules. Number one, the hero always plays by their own rules. I mean, I think Llewellyn Moss is the hero, and yeah. he thinks he's playing by his own rules. Right. I mean, he, he, he just, like... He's like, I'm going to just take this money and leave my family and send her off, and I'm going to just do this thing. Yeah, and he... I mean, He's pretty. He's pretty good. He manages to yeah. like escape and be like pretty clever, and he finds the tracker. So I would say that he plays by his own rules. Rule number two: the hero and the villain are always the smartest people or beings, whatever in the room. Chigger for sure. Yes, yeah. Anton Chigger is definitely. But Llewellyn is pretty smart. Yeah, but he is always one step behind. Yeah, but he's also smart enough. He's also smart enough. So like, yeah. he's yep. smart enough to know. You know, he's a tracker. So he's like, where would you go? You watch your background. I'll sit. I've got my. You know, binoculars, he goes, he gets the money, he finds the tracker. Yeah, he like, he's like, where would you go? He's like, shade, shade. He, you he know, hides like, it in the other hotel room. So, like, I think yeah. he does, he is the smartest guy enough. Yeah, you for know, sure. He, he, he definitely drives the story very well. He gets the jacket, right? He, like, so I, I think in that sense, he's pretty smart. Rule number three, the movie is driven by a police, military, political, or mercenary figure. He was a nom. Yeah, yeah, he was. He was. He's a vet. He's yeah, a vet. He said they say that. Yeah. And uh, uh, rule number four: the movie contains a minimum one explosion. There is a there great, is a explosion. great explosion in the pharmacy. Yeah, I think. Oh, um, well, outside of it. So that's so. Those are the four rules of action movie anatomy. This movie actually hits them it's pretty perfect. well. Yeah, I'm actually surprised. Yeah, and honestly, watching it again, I was surprised at just how much action was in the movie. It, like I said, man, this movie is is really good in the sense of like being it. It's it it's slow. Yeah. On paper. But it feels very fast-paced throughout it. And if you've never seen it before, if you're not very familiar with it, you don't know what's going to happen next. And even when you do, like, because I've seen this movie probably ten times. I love this movie. Yeah. I still am just like, oh, man, here it comes. Yeah. You've got to watch. you got to put everything down and watch it. It's got, yeah. It, I mean, I, th I think one of the hallmarks of movies that win Best Picture at the Oscars, when it's a good movie like this, I mean, not, yeah. not every movie's like this, but you have a good shot, if you're a Best Picture winner, of having moments and scenes that just feel iconic. We talk about that a lot, like mm -hmm. watching a movie and like does something when you're watching it feel memorable, like you'd, you'd watch it again. And there are things in this movie, scenes that feel super visually iconic, uh, just 
exchanges of dialogue. Yeah, the way it's written. It's so funny because last night you and I went out for our buddy's uh, birthday. Yeah. And uh, we were all sitting there talking and you were like, you know, I think it's pretty clear the most. Well, I, I actually, I was thinking about it. I was thinking about that on the way here today that I said this yeah. to you. Because I wasn't trying to tell you that I thought there was clearly. Right. I was wondering if you thought. So if I was like, where are we on the same page? Right, right. So my point behind what I'm bringing this up is that there's so, I think between like three or four of us having that conversation, we all said a different moment that really, really stuck out to us. Yeah. And I think that goes straight to your point of just like the Cohen brothers and Roger Deakins do an incredible job yeah. of, of breaking this movie down and just making it beautiful it's a gorgeous movie I, yeah there's i mean there's a lot of qualities that, that keep this movie that hold this movie together i think i think it's pretty clear the reason this movie is as good as it is is because of chigger i think i think anton chigger is the reason this movie is like it's compelling to the level that it is because he's yeah. so frightening he's so well acted he's like I mean, Moss is great, and Tommy Lee Jones is great. The story's good, but it's just about that character being so commanding. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Ending. Yeah, you have to have him in this movie because if you're not scared of him as an audience member, yeah. the whole movie kind of falls flat. And I think that's why the Coens opened up on the scene that they did to just kind of really lay down and be like, this is who we're messing with. Yeah, because there's so many things about that opening scene that are so cool. And, you know, we'll get into that. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. So, so, guys, a couple things. First and foremost, coming up on the show today, we are going to be talking about our top five haircuts in movies. Yes. Uh, each of us have our own sweet haircut in <laughs> honor of Chigurh and his sweet hair. Um, we are going to be talking about all of the other things on the show we do, uh, AMA question, thesis, you know, thesis statement, fist pump moments, and uh, we will be answering a number of questions. Quick shout out to some of the questions we will be answering. Questions submitted by Josh Ryan, Dominique Porcari, Matthew Ricklebean. I'm sorry, I'm just r- rummaging yeah, through great. your names. Uh, and a few other things. Uh, really quickly, if you guys want to follow along the conversation, you can find me personally at Ben Bateman Media, Twitter, Instagram, what have you. Uh, you guys can find me in those same platforms, at Andrew Guy. And we want to let you guys know we have a Patreon. It's patreon.com slash teamaction. And today, we are shouting out two of our members, Deborah Jane, Deborah Jane Evans, a longtime fan of us, the show, Action Army, Team Action, all that, and Reese Cox. So Deborah Jane Evans, Reese Cox... We salute, we salute you. you in the army. Thank you. Thank you for contributing yeah. all the time. Uh, Deborah Jane Evans, big Chris Evans fan, big Cap fan. Yeah. She tweets about him, you know. We, I, are, we are all big Cap I'm fans. I'm a big Cap fan. I'm big Cap fan. Big Cap fan myself. Uh, so let's hop into the trailer here. And I don't remember this trailer that well. It's sweet, right? I don't remember it. I didn't, yeah. I didn't watch it in, uh, in anticipation of the show. Okay. All right. So here we go. Marissa Serafini in the booth, everybody. What's up, Marissa? Let me ask you something. Oh, here we go. It opens on this. What's the most you ever lost on a coin toss? Look, I need to know what I stand for. Everything. Just call it friendo. That's like that's what makes them great. It's it's the weird. It's the weird stuff like that that makes the Coens so. They always got that quirky humor in their movies. Always. Yeah. Willing. What's in the satchel? Full of money. He's just a guy. Happened to find that money. I got a bad feeling. Compared to what? The bubonic plague. The bubonic plague. <laughs> it's a mess, ain't it, Sheriff? I 
know him every which way. Yeah, yeah. it'll do till the mask gets here. I'm looking for Llewellyn Moss. You go up to his trailer? Yes. Do you want to leave a message? Yes. I don't come back and tell mother I love her. Your mother's dead. No, I'll tell her myself. Yeah, that's a good line, too. I got a loose skin in here. You think there's more moss? Yeah, Stephen Root. Got ocean of sorts that are hunting him? I don't know, y'all do. He's seen the same things I've seen. And it's totally an action movie. It totally is. It's an action western. western. Yeah, it, re it really is. Just how dangerous is it? Compared to what? Bubonic plague. Bubonic plague. The crime you see now, it's hard to I don't remember explain. watching this trailer. It's just when it came all out. Out. I did see this in theaters, though, I know. The same. I, yeah. Me and my roommates all were stoked. Yeah. What's this guy supposed to be? The ultimate badass? Where is he? The ultimate hombre. Last man standing. You before this? I was a welder. Weld anything. What'd I say? Also, the car wreck at the end is so, like, just odd. Yeah. You know, but it's great. Totally. Um, <clears throat> really great trailer. Yeah. It's really, a, like, it's really engaging. Yeah, it's exciting. It shows a lot of the best things about it without really spoiling anything, I yeah, feel. Yeah, absolutely. So, yeah, that's the trailer for No Country for Old Men. We are going to be getting into a full show today, and what we usually do when we follow up the trailer, I think is what we're going to jump into right yeah. now, is our thesis statement. Uh, this is our, your boldest, biggest thought about the movie. If the movie comes up, this is the thought you want to share. It should be, this is the first time, the only time, the, you know, the greatest this, the last this, whatever. Um, should never be, this is my favorite movie that Josh Brolin did in the 2000s or something. Uh, it should yeah. always be stronger and bigger. And if you were going to hold court about the movie you know the most about, this is what you'd say. So I'm going to jump in first and say <clears> that <throat> while most people remember this movie as the breakout performance for Josh Brolin... Or for of uh, Javier Javier Bardem <clears throat> as the kind of resurgence of Josh Brolin as an <clears throat> adult me. actor. Mm -hmm. This is low key, in my opinion. This is low key the comeback movie for Woody Harrelson's career. Yeah, because I remember watching this for the first time, and you see him come in sitting down in the chair, and you're like, "Yeah, you're like, what are you doing here, man?" You're like, "Oh, Woody Harrelson." You're like, yeah. "Oh, you haven't really been in something I've watched are that you was lost good in five or six years, <laughs> yeah. and like you seem a little outmatched." Because I didn't ever think of Woody. As a dramatic actor, really? I mean, he was in movies. I he, never thought Woody... I never gave Woody Harrelson the respect he deserved up until probably after this came out. It started here, <clears> and <throat> then if you look at what happens over the course of the next 10 years of his career, it's it's a little bit at a time, but he starts getting the bigger roles. He's in Rampart, and he starts yeah. getting the bigger roles. And then all of a sudden, you know, obviously it's four or five years ago that the huge explosion happens where he's now in everything. Yeah. But True he's Detective, just... Planet of the Apes. Yeah, like, he's in just everything. He's in Solo. I mean, he's like in all the movies now. But this is where it starts. This is the high-profile movie that he gets a role in that kind of reminds people that Woody Harrelson, this guy is, he's got something special, yeah. and it's crazy when you watch this movie to think it's been a decade now, and it's just, it's taken for granted now that Woody Harrelson's a legit dramatic actor. Yeah, he's really good in this, and he does a really good job in this of just kind of like, he's kind of having fun, but also doing his job throughout it, but he knows he's like in a place, he's in a position he doesn't really want to be in. Yeah. I don't know, he, he does a really great job of are portraying all the emotions. I think they, his character is actually very complex, even yeah. though he's only in it for a little bit. Totally. Um, and I think that's really impressive by him. So I, I like that. I think that's true, because you look at what he did before this, 
and with Zombieland, actually, those were the other the other one that was really big. Was yeah. that like what after the year after, after this? this? Was yeah, that yeah one it's year? like it's like uh, I think it's like five years. I think it's twenty twelve. Oh, really? I think so. It could be. Oh. It might be two thousand nine. No, it's two. I, I think it's two thousand nine. Yeah, I think it was two thousand nine. Yeah. Okay, so. Um, my thesis, and this is like kind of an easy one, but it's also kind of, it is very bold. Um, other than the Coen brothers being the most unique duo of writers ever, right? period, uh, I think that this is their greatest performance ever. This writing is the greatest and directing Coen brothers film? By far. Whether you want to take the writing aspect or the directing aspect of it, there's something just so brilliantly haunting about this movie and... Even without the accolades, which because it won what five Oscars, four Oscars, and it was yeah. nominated for like nine or something, yeah, something like that. <laughs> and the most important one, it won Best Picture. Yeah, and it's just, it's just perfect, man. Every time I go back and watch it, there's there's nothing that I don't like about it. I if there's one thing I have to say is that the TLJ storyline doesn't feel entirely necessary, but yeah. the movie's not even half as good without it. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, I, I get that. Um, so yeah, I, I'm just gonna say straight up. To me, this is. The Coen Brothers' greatest thing that they have ever done in their career. It's a bold statement because they've done so many movies that are at this point huge. considered super iconic. And yeah. for all different genres. <clears throat> I mean, you have, obviously, Fargo was a huge movie, a dramatic film in kind of a similar vein to this. But you also have movies like Raising Arizona that's like a comedy classic. You have right. Brother Where Art Thou, which mm-hmm. is a fan favorite. You Lebowski, got Fargo, another crime drama thriller like yeah. this. Lebowski might be the most sort of like cult classic movie of our whole friggin' generation. It's like, yeah. you know, you have, you have so many movies they've made. True Grit was nominated for like 10 Oscars yeah, or something like that. That's good. Yeah, recently people loved Inside Lewin Davis. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, they've done so many movies, and that's not even mentioning the ones that are like the fringe movies that some people would be like, you know, Miller's Crossing is my favorite. Some people love Burn After Reading. Yeah, you right. Know, like, but for me, that's just that's just how it is. That's just yeah. how it goes for me. I, uh, Shigur is just, I know that we both wanted to say he's like the greatest villain ever on screen, but it's really tough when a year later Ledger uh, kind of knocks it out of the ballpark. Wins the Oscar yeah. the literal next year, which is kind of crazy that supporting was won in two years by basically two villains and action movies. Incredible villains. Yes, yeah, yeah. super memorable, like amazing <clears throat> villains. Yeah, so uh, I think that's I think that's a totally a totally reasonable one. I think something also very cool to talk about when you talk about how important this movie is, and, and we'll get to this a little later, but... You know, 2007 is regarded by a lot of film historians now. One as, of the greatest. Yeah, like 99 is a year that gets referenced a lot. 99 is one that's talked about all the time. Um, b- between everything from The Matrix to American Beauty to... Uh, SPR. Or no, that's... To, to uh, Toy Story 2 mm-hmm. and like Fight Club. There's 99 is like a crazy year. Um, this this 2007 is another year that gets brought up a lot. Because yeah, this how do you was, feel about Michael Clayton? Well, Michael Clayton is one of my favorite <clears throat> movies of all time. Yep. Also nominated for Best Picture. I mean, this movie was up against... Atonement, Juno, Michael Clayton, and There Will Be Blood. Right. Um, there Will Be Blood, also a masterpiece. Absolutely. A lot, people, a lot of people believe that should have won Best Picture. I think Michael Clayton is one of the most criminally underrated movies of its time. It's, and Juno is one of the most iconic cult classics that have come out in our lifetime. A lot of people believe Zodiac is the greatest Fincher movie. That's 2007. Yep. yep. I mean, 310 to Yuma came out in 2007. It's like a really strong year for movies. It really is. And for this to kind of win that year and going back and looking at that list, I don't feel... Like, I was cheated. I don't feel wronged. I don't think that something should have won over it. I don't think, as much as I love every other movie that you just listed, I just don't think that they they did what this movie did. This movie creates, yeah, this movie creates a really special vibe. The feeling when you watch this movie is is palpable. Yeah. Um, And I think There Will Be Blood has something similar, but there's a... There's a silence to this movie and the choice to not have a traditional score. Just have a little bit of sound design, but that's it. Yeah, there's this weird thing that I've had happen to me in my last, maybe, eight years of being an adult. To where I love Daniel Day-Lewis. Yeah. I really do. But I almost don't care anymore. 
Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah, right. Like, I really love the dude. I truly believe he's probably the greatest actor that will ever live and ever has lived. Yeah. But also, at the same time, I can make an argument against that because in so much of him just acting, it's just like... It's just like watching Daniel Day-Lewis be Daniel Day-Lewis right. in whatever way Daniel Day-Lewis wants to be. Whereas you look at, you know, whereas you look at this movie and it's like Javier Bardem filled a role that yeah. was written in a certain way and he brought it to life in the most iconic way he possibly could. I, don't, I just I love D-Day, but I'm kind of I'm kind of over him. I still yeah. I refuse to watch Lincoln. I still haven't watched it either. <laughs> yeah. It's like it's it's like the most. Uh, what, what do I always say about that movie? It's the most celebrated, irrelevant Oscar movie of all time. It's nominated for like twelve Oscars or something, yeah. and like no one I know has ever seen it or wants to talk about it ever again. Nope. Um, so anyway, that's uh, that's going to wrap up thesis statement. Uh, we are going to continue moving through the show. Our next bit of the show we do is called fist pump moment. Fist pump moment is that moment that the movie something happens. You look around, you're like, are you seeing this right now? This is so awesome. You give like a sound one of these guys. You want to talk to your buddy. You're like, oh, we got to talk about this scene. Yeah. So it's a moment you, you're watching the movie. And you're like, I just need to rewind it and watch it again. There's it's a couple. Awesome. There's a couple in this movie that are like, whoa. <clears throat> and one that I thought about that I, I wasn't going to use, but I actually think might be my fist pump is when he gets out of the water. And he sees the dog coming towards him, and he has to clean out the gun and dry oh, the clip. Yeah, and he's like, <laughs> and yeah, and you're like watching the, the dog, swim, and they hold on the shot, and yeah. he's like, and he, and just as the dog jumps, he finally gets the and shoots it. I, that's that scene is shot brilliantly, brilliantly. It's amazing. Like that dog, it's just like its head is just never yeah. stopping. Yeah, I remember watching that again this time, and I was just like. Yeah. This is so well done. Such a cool, yeah. That's, I mean, obviously, animal cruelty is never cool, but like, in, from the context of this movie, it's a very, very cool scene. He's, fr- it's, he's totally scared. Like, you put yourself in that situation too, because you're like, he knows if that dog gets him and the it's gun's not active, it's gonna be ugly. It's gonna be really bad. Yeah, and so, <laughs> so I love that moment. Um, I also. I mean, I talked about it, and they showed it in the trailer, but I think that the most memorable scene in this whole movie is the coin flip scene. I just coin think, toss. Yeah. I think it is. It just it feels so indicative of what this movie's about. Um, there's a random, and I think it's iconic of the movie, too, and that's why the trailer opens with it, but the way the movie ends with the dreams, it makes you kind of recognize that there's a, there's a broken morality that this character, Tommy Lee Jones, adheres to and follows in his life because he's a part of this old generation where he doesn't understand the new violent world. So right. he expects the world to basically adhere to this morality that is totally broken in a character like Sugar, which is why he gets away at the end of the movie. And so I think the idea that somehow this old innocent man's fate could be decided by a coin toss, but that Sugar is just kind of playfully eating like beer nuts or something yeah, and making him flip this coin and he's like, you know, you have everything to win and everything to lose. It's there's a random quality to it where you're it's again it's another old man who doesn't fit in this new world, has no idea really how close he is to death, doesn't even understand yeah. the interaction and but the writing and the pacing and the back and forth is so brilliant. Um, yeah, the writing in that scene is so incredibly uncomfortable. Yeah, well, I got to be closing now. What time do you close? Around now. What and he's like, and that? he's like Around demeaning dark? him Around too after dark. When he's like, <laughs> he's like, so you married into it? He's like, yeah. you don't call it that. I'm not calling it anything. I'm calling it anything. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And his delivery is, I mean, he's just the best. Like he's Anton Chigurh so is good. incredible. Javier will probably never ever do anything as good as that in his career, just because it was perfect. Yeah, it was so perfect. All right, so you used a couple. I'm gonna use a couple. <laughs> The opening of this movie and the filmmaking that goes into, first of all, Shigur letting someone arrest him. That's one of the coolest things. It is, that, I, you're like, why 
did he allow him to arrest him? Yeah. At all. Right? So he's he, just bored? He gets in the car willingly, and it's such a cool choice on their part, because he seems so much crazier. Yeah, and you see him just sitting there and slowly take the cuffs underneath his hands and stand up, and you see how big he is. You're yeah. like, oh my god. Yeah. What is going to happen? And so for me... His face when he's killing him is horrifying. So scary. It's like it's, he's having an orgasm. Yeah. You know, and then also the f- the foot marks on the floor. The That's, shoe marks on the floor is, is I think, the, the thing that stands out the most in this movie it's, to me. Yeah, you see it happening as it's happening. And when they pull back, the way that it's splayed out like art. Yeah. Yeah. And the blood and all that. You're just like, th- so many things happen in that moment where you're like, oh my God, this is what kind of movie this is. That's who this guy is. That's yeah. where the story is. No, who is anything? You said you made this incredible point last night about how they waste zero time with exposition in this movie. Yeah, ever. There's never, none. None, and it is so necessary. Or it's so unnecessary. You yeah. don't need it. Uh, <clears throat> also, I love the other fist pump I have. Blowing up outside of the pharmacy when you just he just yeah. like walks in, doesn't care, blows up. Yeah, and there's also a thing that they do with his character that I think is so cool, and it's it, <clears throat> you know because because. The Coen brothers are art- artistic filmmakers. They're definitely artists. I mm-hmm. mean, you look at like a lot of the movies they choose to make, and it's everything from a rom-com like Intolerable, Intolerable Cruelty to kind of a screwball weird comedy like you know no uh, like like uh, Oh Brother, oh brother. Yeah. to basically an action movie like this. It's like an action western. They yeah. do all kinds of different stuff, but you know when you think about what they achieve with the character of Chigger, it's like. To establish his technical proficiency to be able to, like, do surgery on himself, know the drugs to get, how to do it, how to sterilize it, how to bandage it, how to get them, like, it's immediately after it happens. It's like, you watch this guy, you're like, this guy's the greatest hitman ever to Lula. Yeah, and you're like, and you're like, okay, so they're, instead of, like, having some general in a room reading out of a file, Anton Sugar, born, you know, (laughs) decorated, and it's like, you know, went rogue in 77. It's like, instead of any of that shit, they just have him do the stuff, and that's how you know he's awesome. Right, and and, in the moment that they do that, where they do give Sugar the, the villain qualifier with Woody... It's more about telling you who Woody is than telling you who Shigur is, yeah, which right. I think is really cool as well. Um, and then the other one that I have to say really quickly is the silent, the light goes out in the hotel room, you hear the footsteps, the thing, and then the knob hits him in the chest. Yeah, that's a that really sweet moment. So he's, <clears throat> yeah. and he shoots, yeah, love it, love it. Uh, all right, so uh, moving on to the next uh, segment here, we're going to go into star profiles, which is, this is super interesting, because we covered Brolin last week right? when he was... Uh, um, for Infinity War, for obviously. Thanos. For Thanos, and you see what he's done in the last few years. Yeah. This is where you go back to him. This is like, this movie did a lot for everyone. Yeah, I mean, it's the turning point in Brolin's career in a lot of ways because, so this, this is the thing. People don't remember, or he, some people do. But, but he was in Into the Blue. Well, he's in The Goonies. That's, yes. that's like the early credit that, that Brolin shows up. And then, and then after that, he's in a bunch of TV stuff, you know, going through the 90s. He's, he's just in a bunch of movies, right? He shows up in Flirting with Disaster, and, and you know, he shows up in Mimic. And he's in like that, a weird rom, isn't he in a couple rom-coms? And... He's in the Mod Squad Hollow Man. Like, he, he shows up in Hollow just a Man. bunch of movies. He's not yeah. a star of any of them he's always a supporting character and by the time he got no country he's like mid to late 30s so he had been a guy that had just kind of had a career and we talked about him last week Mm -hmm. but this is you know we talked about thanos last week what these last 10 years have accounted for you know this is where it starts this is where brolin gets his moment where he's the guy that's married to diane diane lane and he just starts getting roles is that labor day or what movie is that 
Are you that he's about? married to Diane Lane? Which one is that? He was married to Diane Lane. Oh, oh, I see what you're saying. He was her husband. <laughs> yeah, no, I know that. I was like, what movie were they married? Anyway, so you look at his career, and in 2005, he did Into the Blue, where he was just like, I think the older, like, cool dude friend of Paul Walker or something like that. Or he could have been the bad guy. I have no idea. And then Dead Girl, The Dead Girl in 2006. And then he starred, I believe, as one of the leads in one of the, the Grindhouse movies, uh, or one of the shorts yeah. in 2007. That sounds right. I, I don't remember <clears throat> who he is in that, but he's... Yeah, some somebody, and then but like literally right after, literally right after, it's like in the Valley of Allah, American Gangster, Milk. He plays George Bush in W. Yeah. Wall Street, the sequel, Jonah Hex, True Grit, Men in Black Three, Gangster Squad, Old Boy, Labor Day, Guardians, Inherent Vice, Sin City, Dame to Kill for, Age of Ultron. It's just, it's just Which like is interesting because he still does some bad movies in there. You oh know? yeah, but you have to. That's just kind of the, the the nature of the beast. But yeah, it's it's just skyrocketing for someone who you. I mean, he's a. I mean, even before Thanos happened, he's a straight legitimate A list. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, just everything that he shows up in, he gets to. I mean, I think I think the world recognized, the world recognized that this was this guy who had this like real like confident, laid back masculinity. He was a total dude. Yeah, like, like just a dude. It's like he had to. I think he had to grow into his age a little bit. He had to actually. I bet he was probably a little hot headed when he was younger. Or something yeah, like that. a little hot headed, and it's, it it works better for him to be like loosely playing forty than yeah. it does to be playing loosely twenty five. It doesn't. He's less appealing as a young guy. He's more appealing as a guy with some some stones. You know, he's gone through it a little bit. Yeah, and like uh, <clears throat> you know, for us, our buddy Matt telling yeah. us about him being on set and he's just like the coolest dude he's just a dude as long as you treat him with respect he is like one of the best people you're gonna have on set yeah now my personal stories with Brolin I've shared before I, he's been a little bit of a cock well, yeah. a few times yeah, I've yeah. met him but it's cause I always met him I always met him in social situations at like bars or whatever or was around him not when he was like I didn't hang out with Brolin right. but I was around him at bars several times have you remember these stories? I can't remember them very well. Oh, uh, there's a handful. Yeah, well, it was always on Main Street. It was like, year, like five, six years yeah, ago. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's so around the same time as I met the other dude. The uh, You may recognize well, yeah. me as the villain in the good amount of action movies. Joaquin de Almeria. Yeah, exactly. Uh, all right, so then here we go. On the other side, you have Javier Bardem, who <clears throat> shows up in Collateral in 2004 really quickly as the contact. That, and, he's, uh, and he's great. He's very good. This yeah. is the one that Fox meets yeah. in the club. Uh, and then he's in The Sea Inside, which I, I don't know it. And then Goya's Ghosts. Which the I do know of. The Sea Inside is the one where he plays like a paraplegic, is like a painter or like a, I can't remember like exactly, but it was it was a big movie around this time where he, it was like, a, he might have gotten Oscar nominated. It definitely got nominated for Best Foreign Film. Mm-hmm. Um, it was, it was a big deal. I mean, his, his run in here is around this. It's like Eat, Pray, Love. I think it's right after this. He's one of the guys in Eat, Pray, Love. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and he starts showing up in more and more things. He's a phenomenal actor. I... I really wonder what's going to happen with his career. Like, I was happy to see him get the role in Pirates, but right. it was also kind of like it's a dead franchise. You yeah, really you wish wanna... that he had gotten. That. You wished he had gotten an MCU role, like a sweet one. Yeah, he would be great in the MCU. Yeah, he'd be awesome. I mean, I you wonder like who he would. They got to make him a villain eventually in, in one of those universes. Yeah. Oh, he has his role. Oh, he has is his he role. In... What is he in the Monster Squad thing? Monster Squad, like the you know like the thing that, that Tom Cruise is in, Mummy. Oh, thing? he was supposed to be, but I don't think that's ever going to happen. Yeah, I think the I think Tom Cruise in that Mummy movie, yeah, that was... torpedoed it. He, where, where he does show up, the big movie that he does show up <laughs> as a villain that people remember is Spectre. He's the not Spectre, yeah. uh, Skyfall, Skyfall. Yeah, he's which he's, Skyfall. he's he's pretty great in Skyfall. He's got that creepy blonde hair. Yeah, and he's got his face 
face off. His yeah. face off. Uh, all right, so I think right now would be a great time for us to talk about, since you just mentioned it. The creepy blonde hair? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> our top five haircuts? Yes, our top five haircuts. So I so I think you and I approach these lists a little differently, because uh, obviously Javier's sweet in this movie. You know, this is one of the really interesting things. His haircut is indicative of the time period, but if you had asked me in, a sh- in the Schmodown, if you had said to me beforehand, like, what is the decade this that No Country for Old Men is based in? Right. And if I hadn't gone back to rewatch it and I tried to think about it, I'll bet you I, I would have guessed wrong. Mm-hmm. I, I don't, like, l- watching it again, I can tell it's the 70s now, and they even make reference to the year at one point. Right. But it looked, thinking back, I would have been like, it seems like kind of like Midwest, old time, I was like 50s. I probably would have guessed 90s or something. 90s, okay. 80s or 90s, I would guess. But, I mean, his haircut is the thing that's the dead giveaway, <laughs> and the polyester pants. Yeah, his whole outfit in general is, is phenomenally Super 70s. Super 70s. Yeah. Uh, so I'm going to hop in. So we, yeah, like Ben said, we approach these lists a little bit differently. I went for top five haircuts as in things that, these are my qualifiers. <laughs> they stood out to me. They were impactful in my lifetime. And then, or they just make me laugh. Or they were ruined by Russell Crowe and Gladiator. Or they were ruined by Russell Crowe and Gladiator, <laughs> which is my number five. Russell Crowe and Gladiator rocked the Caesar haircut, which I don't know if you guys know, but after that movie came out, everyone had that fucking haircut the caesar the caesar every fucking dude had it everyone like you would just go in and be like gladiator and they'd be like and i tried getting it gladiator did, yeah. did not work out yeah. well for didn't me didn't work out well for did me did not i was way too chubby and way too brown to rock the caesar it did not go well that's pretty amazing but uh, god bless my mother for supporting me in that haircut i love it i love it uh i wish we had a picture of a halloween outfit we oh, can throw god. up on the screen right now you just eating all the chocolate with the Caesar, like, <laughs> like like barely squeezed into a gladiator costume. <laughs> uh, my number five is going to be uh, Franca Patente from Run Lola Run. Uh, oh, okay, yeah. Well, and it's when I say greatest, I, it, because iconic. You know, I can't tell you that much about that movie anymore. I saw it in theaters with my dad when it came out. He took me to see it, and mm-hmm. I remember liking that movie. Um, it's not a movie that I feel like comes up that much, but what I do remember about it is her haircut. Because I, I was trying to decide, it was this. Or do you go Mila Jovovich in The Fifth Element? Oh, yeah, that's and, a good one. Because they have, like, you know, the similar, like, sort of iconic colored hair. Mm-hmm. But Run, Lola, Run, I always think of the color of the movie and the color of her hair as, like, the thing that stands out. It's, like, the thing about that movie that I, it feels iconic when I think about it now. Right. So, yeah, that's my, uh, that's my number five. Uh, my number four is going to be Drexel Spivy. Ooh, that's a killer true one. True romance. The fact that Gary Oldman could have even just played that character at all and yeah. made it work... And the dreads, amazing. Makes me want to just go back and just do that movie again. That was a fun wow. episode. That was a really, fun, that was a really good movie. Yes, yeah. it was like uh, one of my first times ever watching it when we yeah. did it on the show. Uh, I'm gonna go uh, with my my number four is going to be uh, Lloyd Lloyd Christmas. Oh, from Dumb and Dumber. Damn it, that's one of mine too. Yeah, yeah. Lloyd you, Christmas. How do you not go with la 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 la? <laughs> the <laughs> ultimate bowl cut. They actually put a bowl on his head yeah. and cut it. It's just it's perfect. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so good. Mary. All right, you got to go again then because you just used one of mine. Okay, so so I'll go Lloyd number four. I'll okay. go number three, Uma Thurman in Pulp Fiction. Oh yeah, I feel like that's a sweet, so iconic. And talk about a movie. Talk about a haircut that you've seen shown up every Halloween for your oh, for, forever. forever. And yeah. I, I actually just saw uh, a fan of ours. I saw her post a picture of her in a new shirt. It's just like a white shirt with a black silhouette of her and like a and like blood running yeah. down her nose and the haircut. Super awesome. Uh, all right, so I've got two left. Then I'm so sad that you used my Lloyd. Uh, I'm gonna go Nicholas Cage in anything, but. <laughs> Nicholas Cage specifically in Peggy Sue got married. Oh, you love that hair. I love it. That's it, the that's the blonde yeah, like yeah. fro. <laughs> if you guys haven't seen it, it was my avatar for our fantasy football league for quite a few years. 
Nick Cage, Peggy Sue got married. Yeah. Google that. Team Ticklish Cage. Yep. Uh, I almost used <laughs> I almost used McConaughey in Dallas Buyers Club because of like the mustache and hair combo. I decided to kick it off my list. Which, it's a it's oh, a great yeah. <clears throat> it's a great haircut. But uh, my number two is going to also be Nicolas Cage. Uh, it's going to be Nicolas Cage in the film Knowing. So, oh, so good. <laughs> so there's a there's a period of Cage's career, like right around the mid 2000s, <laughs> as he was transitioning from like a list movie star to bankrupt movie star to who needs money person who collects dinosaur parts to person who takes all the roles in straight to video movies and his hair I am the white <laughs> ghost his haircut in this period of time was ever changing but in the movie knowing <laughs> it, looks, it looks as though somebody said to Cage hey you should shave off your sideburns, but kind of like grow a bird's nest on your head. Yeah. And he did. And his so, forehead got bigger. Yeah. Somehow. somehow his forehead looks bigger, and he doesn't have sideburns anymore, but he's got... It's a really weird haircut. One of the worst. Yeah, it's also sandwiched between two times that he he did the Cameron Poe in the film Next, and yeah. also in the film Bangkok Dangerous, he has the receding hairline with like the stringy long like, wig going yeah, on. Yeah, that's really gross. Yeah. Like, that's, greasy. Again, so I think his stylist... <laughs> You know, missed the boat on that one. I don't one. know what happened. He probably just doesn't have a stylus and he I can't afford either. one. He's his own stylus. <clears throat> my he number one. Pays himself. My favorite one, excuse me, is, it's been a while, it's a throwback. I don't know if you guys remember an episode where we talked about going full soloist. It is Jamie Foxx <laughs> in The Soloist. Guys, if you haven't seen that movie or seen his haircut, it is I mean, I don't even know how to it's explain wonderful. it. Well, it's bald on top. It's <laughs> in the middle. It looks like... I don't even really know how to describe it without. I don't want to like make fun of the character in the movie, but there you go. Yeah, yeah. Just have Marissa. Thank you, Marissa. You just pull up a picture for us, and that way it can do. It's the. This is like the reason this movie is easy to make fun of <laughs> is because it's the classic movie of an actor going full soloist for a role and no one paying any attention. It's the reason it comes up so much because Jamie Foxx won the Oscar four years prior for a Ray in an incredible performance of a musician and then he goes and does this. Yeah. Which uh, I've never seen so if this movie's really good actually right. then I, you know, and I think I could be wrong about this but this movie is directed by Joe Wright so this is the movie that he followed up Atonement with. I think you're right. <laughs> I think it's about yeah. that. Uh, I just love that we we coined the term full soloist from that movie. Yeah, it's fantastic. Uh, who is your number one number greatest? Number one. Oh, I already know who it is. None other. Yep. Then The, the Bodhi. The Bodhi Safta. He's, uh, he's got the greatest hair in his whole <clears throat> career in Point Break. He's magnetic. They his hair. They only live to get radical. They only live to get radical. <laughs> yeah, that's a good line. I'm glad you remember that one. Of course I do. Yeah. Uh, <clears throat> Bodhi in, in Point Break. He's got the best hair. People Sexiest Made Alive 1990. Um, <laughs> ben owns that. <laughs> uh, I've got it framed on my wall. Yeah. Uh, look, look at that, that mane. He just... You know, if I was ever going to grow my hair out long again, I feel like I would dye it. I would tease it. <laughs> I, I like, this is one of those things growing up as a brown boy in a very, very white town. I would see haircuts like this and be like, man, I want to get that haircut. Yeah, right. I was like, I can do that. I <laughs> <laughs> just like, my mom, she would like break it to me. She'd be like, honey, I'm sorry. Your hair can never, <laughs> you do, can those never do those things. <laughs> Does your like, hair get poofy if it gets big? It, it gets go, poofy and curly. Yeah. Yeah, great. it gets curly. Um, I, hope grow, I, have to, I hope you have to grow that out for a roll someday. Oh, it's sweet when it yeah. gets long. Uh, guys, that is our top five list. I know there was one in here that was really excellent, and of course it's from our good friend Richard Eric Jarvie. Yeah. Brad Pitt and Troy. Oh, it's great. Pierce Brosnan and Goldeneye. Yeah. One of the helmet hair that, oh, we, that we talked we about. We talked a lot about his hair. Oh, we sure did. Yeah. And then, of course, I just had to say it, his number three is Patrick Swayze yeah. in Point Break as well. I mean, because the Brosnan hair... <clears throat> 
It wasn't that my thesis statement. Yeah, I think he has the greatest hair in the history of film. Like, like <laughs> that was your thesis. I didn't even remember to put him on my list this time. But like, it's because we talked about in that episode when you think about Brazen and Goldeneye, you don't actually think about what his hair really looks like. You think it's about this gigantic. like well, it's not that big, but in our minds, it's like this huge mane. It's like it seems enormous and flowing. Yeah, yeah, and it's it's. It's just the helmet head. I wish I had remembered to bring that guy. Jarvie, you're, you're a man. king. Yep, you're, you're the a man. king. All right, guys. So uh, really quickly, I, we, we plugged this a little bit at the top of the show. We're going to plug it again right now. Uh, we have places you can follow along with us and the show and our characters in the Schmodown. Uh, we have two Facebook fan groups. There's one for this show specifically. It's called the Action Movie Anatomy fan page. It's yep. on Facebook. And the other one is the Action Army fan page, which is more dedicated to our Schmodown personas. Um but it's still a lot of action movie stuff that's being discussed in there. And if you hear me talk about the Shmodan, you don't know what I'm talking about. We got two big things coming up. Yep. We got a match on May 22nd airing against yeah. uh, DC Movie News. A good yeah. friend of ours, Mike Kalinowski and uh, Adam Gertler, who both work for this network. Yeah, not going to be our not going to be our good friends <laughs> after that match. No, when we play them, we will murder them and destroy them as we do everyone that we play. In cold blood. In cold blood. And uh, secondly, the last thing I have to plug about team action in the Schmodown is we are playing a live match. We are so excited about it. <laughs> it's June 2nd at the El Portal Theater right here in North Hollywood. So if you guys are local, if you're drivable, if you ever wanted to see Ben and Drew do something live, do something live that you would absolutely enjoy, <clears throat> buy a ticket, come to the theater, SchmodownLive.com. It's going to be the most fun thing we ever get to do live. I'm yeah. so hyped for this event. Yeah, we're so excited. I cannot wait. We don't know what kind of crazy entrance we're going to have, and I've been thinking about this. I'm just going to say it on air. I want the army, everyone that's there representing action, to like do something, something all together. To intimidate our opponent. Yeah. There's also a stipulation, by the way, that if we lose that DC movie uh, news match and we lose to the Shire Wolves on June 2nd, we have to break up as a team. Which I think is ridiculous, so, That because I, I just came back. Yeah, it's a stupid... I don't know why they, the league decided to do that to us, but I guess they wanted there to be stakes or something. I mean, we're just, going to beat DC movies. Of course we are, but, but like, they just they just they just want to they just want to keep us down. So we have to win that match first. Um, you know, if we lose Whatever. if we lose the DC, but we beat the Shire Wolves, we're fine. But you know, we just can't lose both. So yeah, <laughs> yeah, I don't even want to talk about it. Uh, yeah. So uh, moving on to our show, moving on through our show. This next part is what we call production development, and uh, we're going to be talking a lot about the Coen Brothers because they did everything on this. Yeah, so this is this is really interesting. The Coen Brothers made their first film, I believe, in nineteen eighty four or five. It's called Blood Simple, and it's okay. like a, it's kind of like a horror, it's like a horror thriller sort of a thing. Um, it's like a Texas like I, even, I, I watched it. It's like a murder thriller kind of thing. Good. Um, it's fine. fine. Yep. I mean, for somebody's first movie, it's really solid. There was this really interesting book that I read once. I think I've talked about it on here before, but it was called My First Movie, and I read it in middle school when I was like, it probably was like 2002, I'm guessing, is when I read it. It was one, something like that. And they had it in my school library, my middle school library, and they had just gotten a copy. It was hardback, and it had um, like 15 to 20 pages uh, written from the point of view of 20 filmmakers talking about their experience making their first movie. Huh. So Kevin Smith talks about Clerks. That's why I read it. Cause what's, what's, the, what's the movie called? Or the book called? I think it's called My First Movie. Okay. Um, I talked, when I interviewed Kevin Smith a couple years ago, um, I brought it up. I was like, so I read this book that you wrote a chapter in. And he was like, really? And I was like, yeah, that's like how I, and so, but he, so that's like a lot of the stuff I learned is like, that's why I watched Blood Simple because the Coen brothers have a chapter. Mm-hmm. Anthony Minghella, who directed Cold Mountain and The English Patient. He mm-hmm. talks about Truly Madly Deeply, his first movie. Um, there's a lot of directors in there that talk about their first one. Barry Levinson talks about Diner. So I got into Barry Levinson. Really? So I became a fan of a lot of these directors fascinating. from reading this book when I was like 12. Um, and so I remember reading about Blood Simple and it made me want to go watch it. So I watched Blood Simple and it's a good movie. But what's crazy about that is that after that, the next run of 10 movies they rip off, it's like 
all just hits. It's like they follow that up with I think Raising Arizona is their second movie, which is like one of their it's one of their most famous movies. Yeah. I then think I believe so. Miller's Crossing, and then it's like Hudsucker Proxy, Barton, Barton Fink, Fink. Yeah. right? Then it's like Fargo, Big Lebowski, um, Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? I'm probably forgetting one. Like, like there's like ten movies in a row that are all just movies people love. Um, and then you get into the early 2000s, and and they have a couple down years because they make The Lady Killers and Tolerable Cruelty. Man, who wasn't there? Man, who wasn't there? Yeah, movies that people were not as big of a fan of. It's like they got a little more commercial, and then they made this movie, and it was like <laughs> Return to Form, yeah, hard. And- and now it's kind of like, now I'm not sure, they're, you know, they're doing their thing again, but that's what they do. It's a little bit like you one for us, one them. for them, one for us, yeah. one for them. Because they can get the biggest actors in the world now, and the movies they make now are all kind of, I, I mean, Burn After Reading is a great example of a movie that's like star-studded that no right. one gave a shit about. Yeah, it was such a <laughs> weird movie. And it wasn't bad. It was, it was really interesting and like, yeah. you know, the the pop in the closet is like yeah. a holy shit moment for sure. Yeah, it's it's totally fine. Um, but then you have movies like Burn After Reading that people really like. You have Inside Lewin Davis, another movie people really like. So they've had, they've had a right. pretty fascinating career. And they also write for people... Yeah, there you go. My first movie, Stephen Lowenstein. That's, oh, that's yeah. the book right there. That's so cool. Yeah. Uh... And they also write for a lot of directors out there um, when they don't direct their films. You know what mm-hmm. I mean? Like, they are... It, it is interesting, though, how their writing is astronomically better on screen when they direct it. Yeah, well, they, it's it's the thing... <clears throat> I think if you were going to like describe what are the hallmarks of Coen Brothers films, it's, like, the quirky comedy. Yep. The sort of, like... The pacing and that the sort of like black that sort of black comedy is like mm-hmm. definitely something that you're very used to when you watch a Coen Brothers movie. There's almost always going to be a moment of violence that is like it kind of like shocks you, right? And almost every Coen Brothers movie, there's that in there. It feels like George Clooney has made a career trying to make movies that feel like they're Coen Brothers movies, <laughs> and all he does is make bad movies that don't feel like Coen Brothers movies, right? Like, like Suburbicon if... looks like it's yeah. trying to be a Coen Brothers movie to a T. Yeah. So some of those other movies that they'd written that they did not direct were uh, Bridge of Spies. So it's yeah. like I'm kind of footing my mouth there because that movie was, you know, very uh, well received. It's um, fine. Yeah, exactly. Uh, Unbroken in 2014. Oh, yeah. um, uh, the Naked Man. Hmm. Crime Wave in, 90, in 1985. And, of course, 2012's Gambit. Gambit. Yeah. I know you are Gambit. I know you are Gambit. <laughs> uh, so you know, no matter how good that you are, you can always you always have your slight missteps. This movie was also based off of a book from a very, very, very famous writer Cormac McCarthy. Yeah, he's famous <clears> for <throat> writing enormously dark, uh, moody mo- films about sort of like post-apocalyptic, post-apocalyptic, like very, very depressing American stories. Um, yeah, mid- like- Midwest in, in a lot of cases, and uh, he won the Pulitzer for The Road, which was adapted into a film starring Vigo Charlize. And a handful of I can't other people. Who the kid was, but it's if you guys haven't seen the road, we'll probably never do it on the show because of how depressing it is. It's like it's very good, but like yeah, it's really depressing. The road really is like depressing. That scene in the in the cellar is like one of the most like oh the gnarly one with the th- oh, yeah, it's so frightening. And the movie opens up with like basically Charlie's just leaving the family and running out into the night, and that's how it opens. And you're like, what the what yeah. am I watching here? Yeah. Uh, Beautiful story, brilliantly acted, uh, heartbreaking. But yeah, so Cormac McCarthy is a legend. He's won the Pulitzer. He's won numerous other awards. Uh, he has. Let me see if I have this here. Um, still alive, still writing, still doing the thing. There was one thing that I wanted to talk about that he had. Oh, I guess I can't find it anymore. I wish I could remember who directed <clears throat> the road. I like. I know it. It's on the tip of my tongue. Who directed the road? John Hillcoat. That's who it is. Yeah. Um, so. That's so. That's the that's the Coens, uh, and then you move into you move into Scott Rudin, 
And Scott Rudin is a guy who basically in the 80s founded Scott Rudin Productions. Um, he eventually took a, a post as an executive producer at 20th Century Fox and then eventually for almost 15 years held the title of president of production. And in 2012, he became one of the few people to have won both an Emmy, Grammy, Oscar and Tony, and the first producer to do so. What a stud. Isn't like Bette Midler the other person to do that or something? Uh, Barbara Streisand. <laughs> Barbara Streisand, yeah. I mean, yeah. Um, no Country for Old Men. He also produced There Will Be Blood. Yeah. The, the other front runner for Best Picture that year. That year, and then of course, a few years later. Social Network. Plus, Social I mean, Network. dozens and dozens more. Like, I'm, I literally listed a couple <laughs> because, like, there are movies that we like that we talk about. Right. Like, Social Network should have won Best Picture that year, and it didn't. Um, so that's. Yeah, I had an interesting moment when I was, like, reading about the Coen brothers and, like,. <clears throat> What would their lives have been like if their brother wasn't born? You know what I mean? Yeah, it's like an you look point. at these two dudes that have worked together their whole lives, and their greatest accomplishments are movies where they direct, write, and produce it yeah, entirely they... on their own for the most part. Other than Scott Rudin, like he, him being a, a you know helping with production and Cormac adapting it, but it's just it's just incredible watching these guys work together. So you go in and you look at this movie, which actually is kind of surprising when you look at the box office. So it was uh, produced and distributed by Miramax. It cost twenty five million dollars to make. Which is incredible, because you look at the price of getting Josh Brolin now, or <laughs> yeah. even Javier Bardem now. It would cost and Tommy, million. Yeah, it would, exactly, for all of them. So that's crazy. Uh, November 9th, 2007 was when it released. It made $74 million domestic, an additional 97 uh, foreign for a grand total of $171 million for this movie, which is shocking. Yeah. You know, um, <clears throat> this is like the prime also, if thinking about... Not the prime of, but it's the end of prime Tommy Lee Jones, where he was like, right. he's he's aging into like old man territory at this point. He's in in the Valley of Allah, like right there at the same time. <laughs> as Him this and Charlize are in there, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's it's a solid movie. It's not great, but like, th- you know, like this is sort of where he starts the transition into like when he shows up in in um, Jason Bourne. Yeah, he's like you're like you're you're getting old. You're man. like you're old man. Like you're I don't you couldn't play like an action hero lead type of role anymore or even just like a normal villain you have to be an elderly character otherwise it's not sellable so this is like the back end because you know he wins the oscar 93 and then he's two-face in 97 which is like a, 95 95 which is like a big deal role at the time it's a really good role 12 years later he does this and he looks a world different you know? yeah yeah so this movie opened at 11th uh, on its wide release, number eleven at seven point seven million, but then proceeded over the next several few weeks to months <clears throat> to make all of its money back and more. This movie is at eight point one on IMDb. It is the hundred fifty ninth greatest movie of all time, according to them. It's got a ninety three by all critics, a ninety one by top critics, and an eighty six percent by the audience, which makes sense in a movie like this. Usually, Oscar movies it turns yeah, it would turn some people off. It's a little too slow for some people. Yeah, and it won four Oscars. Yeah, well, and also there's a real ambiguity to the ending. I mean, it's the ending is ambi- <clears throat> is ambiguous, but also I think watching it again, I felt the same level of dissatisfaction that I felt in the first time when I watched it, which is that it's really dissatisfying that Llewellyn just dies, dies and you don't even see it. Yeah, it's not. I mean, I understand the storytelling, and I understand that the sort of the point of the story is that his death was inevitable, and that's you're supposed to believe that from the beginning that there's right. no way he's going to get away. There's just none. But, like, that's not how we watch movies. Yeah. You know, you always believe your hero's going to get away. Yeah, and also the randomness to him not dying at the hand of Chigurh is, I think, also the point. It's supposed to sort of be like they're facing off a movie, but it's a coin flip. And there is no, like, morality that's supposed to make you believe that, you know, good guy will die to the hand of bad guy because he stole money and he's in this life. It's like, it's bad guys are going to get their money back. And bad guy flips (laughs) coin and drives off on a bike and gets out. Yeah, it's... 
It, it's a brilliant use of ambiguity, but it's also just goes to show that no matter what happens when you make movies, us as an audience, we always need closure. Yeah, there, there's like a really interesting thing. Um, I don't know. Did you did you like in in middle school or high school like write anything? Did you write a short or ever like write a short story? Yeah, I wrote or, books. Yeah. Wrote, yeah, like short stories all the yeah, time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so <laughs> I wrote a 700 page novel. <laughs> You'll never read it. Either. You'll never read it. <laughs> um, you're, you're like Nicolas Cage in, in The Weatherman. <laughs> Need to add some plutonium, uh, maybe some maybe some maybe prostitutes into horrible. my novel. Spice it up. <laughs> <laughs> so sad. Movie's, movie's very good. Movie's amazing. I watched a Family Man the other day too. It was also, also very good. That movie's really good. The scene yeah. when he when she he wants to buy the jacket and yeah. she's gonna let him, and then she gets him the knockoff. Like makes, it makes me cry to yeah. even just like think about it's it. It's super. It's so sweet. Yeah, I love that. Movie. Yeah. Um, so. Uh, what were we talking about? <laughs> we, we, we were, yeah, we were getting caught up in, in the idea that as an audience, like, so... <clears throat> the ambiguity. And you think about writing, and you think, okay, like, I can write whatever I want. You're like, you know, I, it's, it's my prerogative. It's my characters. I, if I want to write a story, I'll do whatever I want with it. But yeah. it's like, you realize that bad writing is easy writing. Because it's like, if you want to do something shocking, you want to shoot your main character right. at the end of the movie, it's like, well, yeah, it's different, but it's super dissatisfying, and no one will want to watch it. Right. You know, it's like, you, and like the, you know, the, the main character committing suicide... <laughs> Tom Mousseau, like The Room. That's the classic, like... Oh, yeah, like, exactly. That's the yeah. classic, like, it's not satisfying to have your main character off themselves because they can't deal with the ending. With, they can't, They can't. yeah. Because you don't know they how to lost. end your story. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> so I think that's really funny that when you watch a movie like this, it's like, they're masters. They're masters. So they, they're they, not bad writers. This is like a conscious choice on their part. It's also based on a book. Yeah, and, and, and I, I completely agree with their choice. Uh, going back, revis- revisionist history, watching the movie 10 years later. So I'm going to just throw this out there really quick. Josh Ryan, who's a good friend of ours, you can find him at Josh Ryan Sports um, on Twitter. And also, I can't remember what area you're in, but if you're in his local area, look at his Twitter. You guys can watch him on the news. Dude, yeah. a total badass. Yeah. Um, he says, where does Bardem's villain performance rank all time? I think Ben and I both agree. He's probably like top three, if not top two. It's pretty tough, though, that Ledger wins the next year for a more... And a differently, more uniquely iconic performance, I should say. On the all-time villain scale, he's amazing. But, like, Ledger's Joker is iconic in a way that Bardem's is not. Like, Bardem's is memorable, but he's not somebody, like... He won't come up in conversations, say, more than, like, Darth Vader or more than, like, say, Agent Smith or more than, say, like... You know, there's there's characters that are villains in movies that are that are part of our... That they are they become a part of the cultural zeitgeist. I mean, Thanos is going to be a more memorable villain to most people than Bardem ever yeah, will be because right. this is not a movie people go back to rewatch. So, here's the thing: is like, look, I don't want to walk into a dark alley with the Joker in it or Anton Chigurh in it, but I could walk into a dark alley with Anton Chigurh in it. Yeah. you know what I mean. The Joker's not a real person; he's yeah. not a real thing. But what happened if you walked into a dark alley with Thanos? He's thick. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know. I don't, I don't know. <laughs> uh, but yeah, so I think that's what's so cool about it is like this is a real it is a real person. Javier, there's never you never watching is like being like this is a superhuman. This is too fantastic. What's terrifying about him is that he is so real. He's like could be sitting there waiting to get a cup of coffee in front of you at a Starbucks. Right, totally. He but, could be telling me to flip a coin. Yeah, he could be a douchey customer at a restaurant I used to work at or worked at, and is doing this coin flip thing with me, and I'd be a dick to him, and then all yeah. of a sudden I'm dead. <laughs> you know what I mean? All right, so that's. That's kind of a, a loose answer, but his his real question though is: Would the film have been better had they shown the final sequence of Bardem and Brolin? He says, "I think so," as that sort of ruined it for me. But I'm curious what your thoughts are. Yeah, what's weird about it is, 
it gives the it gives the ending of the film this really abstract quality, which is also then illustrated by Tommy Lee Jones, you know, his monologue at the end. That's right. I think one of the weird things about movies is that, you know, you, when you try to make art for the sake of art, when you're when you try to do something different or weird or abstract or not clear because you think that's that it's different and people will enjoy it, sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't. Right. When it works, it's brilliant. When it doesn't work, it's confusing. Um I think if they had shown the final showdown between Brolin and Bardem, it's just a more obvious ending. It doesn't leave it also means that the movie is uh means the narrative of the film is simpler. Right. And that's it's more like an old western. I think one of the things that makes this movie so interesting is that it's based on principles of classic westerns. Clear hero, clear villain, yeah. after money. Um, you know, uh like like justice being served by good guy to <clears throat> bad guy. I think the fact that you don't see your hero who's just kind of like Llewellyn Moss sucks. He's like Yeah, he he really is kind of a shitty, selfish dude. Like I, I understand that he's trying to like you know, convince himself that he's doing it for his fan, but he's not. No, he he's, never is. He's, he's just doing it for himself. He's super selfish and shitty to his wife. He's yep. like, he's a misogynist. He's like, just he just sucks. Just go live with your mother. Blah blah blah. She's always hard. She's always complaining. What's new? Like, he he's he sucks. He really does. And so for me, when I think about the ending of it, and I think about what happened in the hotel, the yep. shootout in the hotel, and getting away and all that, what's gonna top that? You know. That's pretty incredible. You'd have to, yeah, you'd have to give us a more like, you got your dramatic shootouts. Yeah, or the only thing that you're gonna that that, that a, a lesser director or writer would do would be to like turn the end of this movie into like the end of the Matrix and try to make it an insane, fast, fantastical action movie. Yeah. Whereas it's it's not. Totally. And they did it right. So, Josh, I believe that they did it the right way. Dominic Porcari says, Considering the theme, mood, and tone of the film is the best use of an ambiguous ending in modern cinema. Well, we had talked about ranking our, our <clears throat> ambiguous endings. Yeah. You know, I think you and I both agree that Inception has one of the great ambiguous endings. Yeah. We I, don't, yeah, I truly believe he's asleep. Yeah, and I've <laughs> never really been able to decide. I think American Psycho is another one that people often talk about. Yep. Um, the ending is you don't you don't know was he Prisoners is another one people were talking about a lot yesterday, but I also truly believe that Jillian he Hall hears found. the whistle. Yeah. But maybe it's too late. You yeah. Know? You know, I think I, I like the ambiguity to this ending, but I <clears throat> it's not my favorite because I don't even feel like I don't even feel like it's that ambiguous. I think it's more just like it's I think it's 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 fairly resolved. It's just unsatisfying. Well, yeah, and yeah, it's it's it is really interesting because so in that final scene when he dies, he's in the pool. Yeah, which means he 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 did stay and have beers with that lady, right? Llewellyn? No, yeah. no, he's on the ground. He's not in the pool. I thought he was no, he's fa- floating face down in the pool, isn't he? I think he's face down. Or in is the he hotel down in the room. hotel room? I think somebody else is in the pool. I thought that I thought it was a guys in the chat. Is it one of the hitmen in the pool or is it one of the hitmen in the room? Where is Llewellyn actually? I can't I can't remember. I thought, I thought he was, he was in the face pool. down in the hotel room, but either way. Um, Oh, and then, so someone else says the ambiguity to whether he kills his wife or not. He wipes his shoes when he leaves the house. Yeah. He does a thing specifically when he leaves that he killed his wife. Yeah. I, I believe it's the shoes that he wipes or does something or the something socks. Something like that, yeah. Takes the socks off when he leaves. Um, okay, Llewellyn's in the hotel room. Yeah, it's yeah. almost, I mean, the thing about does he kill the wife or not is also like, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter, and of course he does, because he made a promise that he would. Yeah, and right. he's the type of guy that is going to always follow through on his promises. She's like, that don't make no sense. I like when she's like, I need to sit down. Yeah. 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 
Um, yeah. uh, so really quickly before we answer the very last questions, um, should we do our favorite line? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah? Okay. So let's get to uh, let's get to favorite line here. Um, so this movie has a lot of great lines. It's yeah. got a lot, I and mean, I, it's a Coen Brothers movie. Yeah, and I think I mean there's funny lines, there's weird lines, but everybody they're appealing for all different reasons. I think I really love. I really love Tommy Lee Jones' opening monologue. Yeah, I have one from there, too. Yeah, I love when he's talking about the old-time sheriffs. They refuse to carry guns. And I think one of the cool things here is that he says, he mentions them by name. Uh, characters you're never going to meet, that don't their names don't mean anything. Right. But he says their names. You know, he's like, blah, blah, but never, never carried a gun. Yeah. So I was, I was up in Touchin County, never carried a gun. Uh, and, I never, you know, he's, and he says the line where he's like, I love to hear stories of the old timers. Never missed a chance to do so. Yeah. Like I, I love his character is like his character is just freaking great. He's just fascinated by being a lawman. Yeah. You know? In that same monologue, he says, uh it might not be in that same one. I believe it is though. Uh he says, uh, I don't want to push my chips and go out and, and meet something that I don't understand. That I don't understand, yeah. And that's just like Anton Chigurh is the definition of something that you don't understand. No one understands him. Yeah. Uh, so that's my serious one that I really like. Uh, they said my other one in the trailer. Yeah. Tell mother I love her. Your mother's yeah. dead, Llewellyn. Well, then I'll tell her myself. Tell that myself. was great. Uh, but the one that I actually laughed at was, um, I'm used to a lot of things. I work at Walmart. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> she just like says it very matter of fact. Yeah. And it's a very funny delivery. And uh, it's also very Coen Brothers-esque to have that in there. Not anymore you don't. Not anymore you don't. Uh, I love, yeah, I love that. And I also do love in, in the coin toss scene, um, a lot of a lot of Chigurh's line in that, lines in that scene, you know, like, what do I stand to win? Everything. Yeah. And he's like, you know, it, this this coin came all the way here. It made it all the way here. And then at the end, when he says, don't put it in your pocket, then it becomes just a regular coin. Yeah, that's a great line. Which it is. Which it is. Yeah. Which is such a, it's like, oh, it becomes just a regular coin. Yeah. Which it is. And you're like, do you what? think his accent makes him more terrifying? Yes. Yeah. Yeah, because it's like, because he doesn't ever speak poorly. No. He just takes his time. Yeah. You know what I mean? Totally. It's so cool. <laughs> Totally nerding out over uh, Shigeru here. All right, so the very last question we have is by uh, Matthew Ricobain, who is one of the newer names I've seen. I haven't seen him Yeah, much. I don't know if we've ever used the Ricobain question. Uh, really happy to have you here, and your question is fantastic. He says, as this movie has no score, my question, would this movie be better off with an added film score or without? Um, definitely not better off. I think the fact that it doesn't have a film score is amazing. It's one of the most unique things about it. It has sound design, which mm-hmm. is interesting. You hear it in just a couple moments, but for right. the most part... This movie is quiet, and I think it's one of the best things about it. It uh, it underscores perfectly how quiet it would be in that time. It's so slow. Yes, yes. and how how closely you have to pay attention to everything. You know, like, if you're on the run for your life, you know? And how disruptive the violence is. I think it's supposed to be indicative of the simplicity of the time and how... Like these, these, you know, like you just you see like that scene as the as the cartel members are running away in the car and there's bullets over and death and it's like it's so much more chaotic than a lot of the rest of the movie. Yeah, a lot of the scenes, like almost every scene with Tommy Lee Jones, he feels out of place walking in with the gun. He feels like right because you're like because even earlier on, which someone just said, he's like, "Aren't you gonna get yours out?" Yeah, he's like, "I'm hiding behind you." And he says, yeah, I feel overmatched. Yeah, yeah. There's a lot of good lines in this movie. I mean, and I love like. Another thing, that, you know, the simplicity of him is I love when he shows up and he's like, I know that truck belongs to a fellow named Moss. Yeah. The idea that you would know you just someone's know. car yeah. by how small, like. Yeah, and also, you know, I do love that they use the law as 
the weakest point in this whole movie. The weakest character in this whole movie is the lawman. Yeah. He doesn't know what he's doing. He's yeah. in over his head. And he's figuring out everything a step too late. I think that's a really... In- and it's never at a jab at him. Yeah. It's just the world's too much. So, Matthew, Dominic, Josh, and everyone else that we shouted out today, thank you guys so much for all of your questions and your Patreon contributions. Yeah, we've got a Patreon uh, video going up in the next day or two here, another uh, fan top five. Uh, we have some other ideas as well. But, you know, patreon.com slash teamaction. Donate a dollar a month. You get extra content from us. You know, we'll read your top fives on the show. You can even, if you uh, donate at a higher level, become a... A uh, general in the action army. He can suggest films for us to actually cover on the show. Yeah. So that's that. Uh, I suggest we get into the last bit of the move of, of the show, and this is a weird one because like <clears throat> there's no question which of the three yeah. action movie categories does this movie fit into. Totally ridiculous. Totally legitimate. Ridiculously legitimate. I think it's just. Yeah, it's got to be. If this movie isn't anything other than totally legitimate, it fails. Yeah. yeah. Um, and there's only wa- one last thing to do, and that's called <gasps> the pitch. So uh, as as you guys know, uh, you know March, April, May, June, I'm out of town a lot, so yeah. I'm going to be in New York next Wednesday. I won't get to do the show live, but we will be bringing you the Count of Monte, Monte Cristo. Cristo. Uh, this is one of my favorites of all time. It's one of my mother's favorites of all time. Shout out, hi mom. Uh, I'm super bummed that we're not going to be here for a live show, but I am also super super excited to be covering this movie. We taped it. Maybe a few weeks ago, and it was a really fun episode. Yeah, yeah, we pre-taped it, uh, knowing this was coming up. We didn't want to give you guys, uh, you know, short you on the content you deserve, but uh, you'll get to see uh, your, your Edmund Dantes, yeah. Guy Pierce, and Jim Caviezel. Really quickly, do you remember any of the segments that we did on there, so we can maybe tease them for the you guys can play along, since we won't be. Let's see if I can pull it up real quick. Um, I don't. I know. Yeah, <laughs> I know. We do. We do so many. Uh, let me see. Right here, we got. The top three mentors oh, yeah, yeah. in That's, film, because oh, yeah. uh, Richard Harris is so awesome in this. Yeah, uh, some sweet ones. We highlight uh, Caviezel's career and um, young Hollywood stars, if necessary. Oh, and, and Henry Cavill is, does a great job as his son in this, so we we may or may not have thought the, about I talking about I think the mentor it. section is sweet. I think we talk about... That's a really sweet one. Yeah. We so talk about the greatest mentors in film. So Some of your favorites there. Get your list ready. Yeah. Um, all right, guys. That's going to wrap us up for the show today. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you so much for watching. Marissa Serafini, thank you so much for running the show with us today. Thank you, gentlemen. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, be here same time, same place next week for Count of Monte Cristo. Thanks for coming, guys. Bye. From producers Maria Menounos, Kevin Undergaro, Phil Svitek, and the entire Popcorn Talk Network, we would like to thank you for tuning in. For questions or comments, be sure to visit popcorntalk.com. I'm Sir Richard Wentworth, and this has been a presentation of the Popcorn Talk Network. The views expressed herein are those of the hosts only, not necessarily reflect the views of the Popcorn Talk Network or its owners and principals.